Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. Whoa, 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 okay. Gladys, take it easy. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Oh, jeez. Damn. You sure don't make it easy, Gladys. Say, how long was that, Clarence? About 40 seconds there, Frank. Whoa, my best time yet. Well, practice makes perfect. Here, Gladys. What's you up to there, Frank? Hey, if it isn't comedian and pal Amanda Van Nostrand. Oh, just working on my pig wrestling skills. Still looking to go pro? Ah, uh, maybe one day. Hey, since you're here, I wanted to thank you again for helping me out with that Rosen and Swabber interview. I know it was short notice and all, so I really appreciate how you got back to me. Oh, don't mention it. What kind of person would I be if I didn't respond to a professional inquiry in a timely manner? Jeez, if I was the kind of person who, let's say, expressed interest in working with someone and then agreed unambiguously in a series of correspondence to be a co-host on their podcast and then letting that person go off to make plans with that in mind, only to subsequently stop responding to that person, thus making that person look like a fool to his business partners and employers. I'd be a terrible person indeed. Wow, comedian and pal Amanda Van Nostrand. You sure said a mouthful. Such a specific example. If someone were listening, it would sound to them like you were citing an actual incident that happened to one of us. Oh, who's to say, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a good thing that completely speculative scenario actually never happened to one of us. Yeah. Well, since you bring it up, I'd also like to add how hurtful it would be on a personal level. I know, right? Hey, does a lady want to fight a pig? No, she's good, Clarence. (laughs) Where was I? Oh, right. I mean, if that happened to me, I would initially think I must have done something wrong. Being on the spectrum, I have a tough time gauging social situations, and therefore, when things go south, I automatically assume I'm the one at fault. I beat myself up for days thinking I unwittingly creeped someone out, and, and I don't know how to do- All right! But it's a good thing I have people like my wife. Oh, how is Deborah? She's good. To go through the correspondence and assure me that the other completely hypothetical person was actually in the wrong. Good thing, because I... Yeah, yeah, I I think that's enough. Yeah. Well, anyway, comedian and pal Amanda Van Notion, thanks for stopping by. Oh, that reminds me. Rosen and Swab are coming by to promote their new film, Little Dixie. Want to jump in? You betcha. Oh, you're one of the good ones, C&P, Amanda VN. Hey, Clarence, I don't think this pig wrestling thing's for me after all. Hey, thanks for everything. I'm going to get going. Bye. Wait. Now I'll never know how much I love him. Smug, confident, secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demons? The surge through the corridors of the crazed mind? Come with me. Into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. What a reptile! No power on earth can exercise the terror from scum of the earth. 
Okie dokie, folks. I'm Frank Bonacci, and I'm the scum of the earth. What happened? What do you mean, Frank? Well, what do you mean? What do we mean? He's gone. There's nothing we can do about it. No. What I mean is this. Seems there was a time when a person could wake up, cook themselves a delicious omelet, and then head over to the pictures to watch an R-rated film that dealt with complex themes. Now, the only thing that theaters play are films that are PG-13 and under, and that talk down to you. Eggs cost something like a grand a dozen, and Amanda, cover your ears. I can't maintain an erection like I used to anymore. Okay, that last part might just be a me problem. It's like one of those wacky, waving, inflatable tube men you see it outside of used car lots. I can't look at anybody. <laughs> Look, I'm somebody who cried twice during the Netflix adaptation of Matilda. I'll go see a Spider-Man when it comes out in theaters. But it's like that line Joe Pesci says in the best Rodney Dangerfield film that isn't Caddyshack. Easy money. You got any men's shirts for men? When Star Wars dropped in 77, it came on the heels of a decade and change of seemingly endless bitter pills and unpleasant truths about society. And that film's simplified morality and laser swords must have been refreshing considering what came before. But now that kind of light, easily digestible entertainment all but dominates the marketplace. Okay, I gotta tread carefully here. Don't jump down my throat. But the superhero movies, hold on, hold on. I'm not gonna sit here and say I don't enjoy some of them, but let's call it what it is. It's candy. And there's nothing wrong with candy, but too much candy and you get the diabetes like I did. It's just weird when you're using a Batman film to make a sweeping political statement or about like late stage capitalism. It's a guy in an animal costume that beats up crazy people in stories made for children. It's like a little kid walking around in daddy's suit. And the only reason that stuff's in there is so the adults watching it don't feel as bad for just wanting to watch a guy in an animal costume beat up loonies. It's like, okay, so when I was a kid in the 80s and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon was at the biggest, there was always that one kid who would say the original comic was more for adults and more mature because there was blood in it. I actually got into it with a grown-up version of that kid at a board game meetup I used to go to. I know, save some pussy for the rest of us, Frank. I innocently brought up how silly that was. And this got this apparent adult angry. All I could think about when he was raging was the SNL sketch with Shatner when he's yelling at the Star Trek convention. Get a life, will you people? Hey, you, have you ever kissed a girl? Look, I would never knock somebody else's taste. I have nine copies of the Howard Duck movie novelization. Why do I have nine copies? Well, there's still not a lot we know about autism. Life stinks and escapism helps take our minds off it sometimes. It's good to still embrace the child in us, but leave some room for the adult. And they have the blue pill for my little problem, so being an adult isn't all that bad. If we leave more room for adult stuff, then I could get more movies like Little Dixie, a crime film that is almost like a throwback to 70s American New Wave classics like The French Connection, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, and Point Blank. Frank Grillo plays the ruthlessly pragmatic doc, a liaison of sorts between corrupt politicians and a Mexican drug cartel. When one of the sides breaks a truce they had, things get really bad for Doc and his daughter, and he has to do some gruesome things to get things right again. The film is available for sale or rent from all your favorite platforms and in select theaters as well. And with that, I'm so happy to welcome back the first returning guest to Scum of the Earth, the film's producer, Jeremy M. Rosen, and writer-director, John Swab. Thank you guys for coming back. I don't know why, but do you guess you didn't listen to the last one? <laughs> Thanks for having us, Frank. Such a pleasure. Thank you both. Oh, before we get started, um, my wife just wants to know, and I don't want to give anything away from the film. How much for the head? You know, um, oh, right. She, she, she fancies um, Governor Jeffs, a.k.a. Eric Dane, right? The head. Funny enough, we made two of them in Burbank. Eric went in for a fitting. One somehow walked its way off set. To this day, I don't know where the fuck it is. And it uh, it really uh, frustrates me. Uh, the second one is uh, is in my office in Venice, California. So this is how many times are you working with Frank Rillo now? Third time? Uh, let's see. We did uh, Body Brokers, Ida Red. This would be the third. Then we've since done One Day's a Line with him. Yeah. Wow. He's amazing in the film. He does so much with so little. Like one of my favorite scenes in the film is when I don't want to give any too much away, but he's enters somebody's house and he's going to find them dead. 
And the filmmaking doesn't betray any of that, but you understand what's happening and you're learning about him. Like he's the kind of person who would know the telltale signs of dead people about to be in a house. And you get to learn that. And it's all done wordlessly. You could have made him a silent protagonist. And I don't think I would have been any more. I wouldn't have been confused by the story. That's how strong his performance is. Well, that was kind of Frank and I's goal. You know, when I wrote it, my biggest influence was The Samurai by Melville. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, that's like one of my favorite movies. And it's kind of the movie that kind of started this whole genre of the hitman. And Alan Delon is pretty much silent that whole movie. You know, Frank, every time we work together, we usually look at the script and we say, okay, what can we take out? What what of our dialogue here can we rip out? Because Frank is such a uh, captivating guy to just watch exist. You know, he's got this sense of danger about him and his face just eats the camera. People just love to watch him do anything. So our goal was to keep him as silent as possible and as reserved as possible. So I'm glad that uh, that you enjoyed it as much as we do. Yeah, he's amazing to watch. Now, his relationship with Rich, played by Sloan from Grey's Anatomy, he's he's essentially JFK after he screwed over his dad's friends. And was that like a reference for you? Yeah, not not. That's I mean, I'm fascinated by that story. Like, I love that story and that that whole conspiracy. I'll spend the rest of my life trying to figure out what happened to it. Uh, to him. But consciously, no, it was not. But um, I'm sure unconsciously it was to some extent. For me, this feels like the best James Elroy adaptation that wasn't written by James Elroy. Either you guys a fan of James Elroy? I'm ashamed to say I'm not. Oh, you'd uh, love him. You guys take requests. You know, I'd love to see you guys do an adaptation for American tabloid. I think you guys would be perfect for that. Like you guys, like it's, it, it's so in your wheelhouse and I think you would crush it. Like nobody else could. I'm writing uh, down. Uh, know yeah. American James Elroy. Doc feels like a protagonist of a James Elroy novel. Some returning cast people that I, I loved seeing was uh, Billy Blair, uh, who we last saw in Candyland as the most straight to the point John that ever was. <laughs> uh, his scene as the dealer, arms dealer was fantastic. It was one of my favorite scenes. It's all I've ever wanted to be is a person in a motel room dancing working out my hair wearing a gold chain and living my best life like that's <laughs> it's all I, I was like oh shows showstopper I loved I loved that scene I loved it another returning guy is the fucking Chad of all Chads Mark Ward is dude I thought he was memorable in Candyland but holy cow he really you guys could like he would do anything for you guys like he was so great. And it's just like, wait, and it took me a while to recognize that was him. First of all, that sequence. Man, do you want to take this? Because we both were talking before how we love the drag show sequence. OK, so I just automatically think drag queens make everything better. I love them. I was telling Frank earlier, I was like, it's probably one of my favorite things to see like a very macho male have not necessarily like alternative like kink for lack of a better word but like oh that's a preference that I wasn't expecting the rest of the film could have just been watching him wrestle with his like own sexuality like I I loved that scene I loved that scene the announcer was amazing the Santa Claus breakdancer was amazing like Mark was fantastic it had really the essence of Silence of the Lambs (laughs) you know where I was just like yes this just like in your body, living your life as this character. And then like my mom had a dress like that. It's just like, oh, <laughs> all right. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that. You know, and then and then hitting him with like, I really like your sunglasses. I was just like, oh, 
my God. I could have watched them flirt for hours. It was great. I, I, I mean, I'm so flattered that you guys like that scene because I love it. Jeremy loves it. You know, and it's one of those things that I'm not going to say a lot of people, but some people I've read taking offense to it, which I take offense to them taking offense to it. Because, <laughs> sure. uh, no, I get it. I get it. It's not a mean spirited sequence in any way. I don't know. I, I used to live above a drag bar in New Jersey in Asbury Park. And uh, you lucky. Duck. I would go down there and drink a lot and use drugs yep. and uh, and I would go in there in the middle of the day and I remember being in there around like one or two in the afternoon on like a Wednesday or Tuesday and there was a guy singing How Soon Is Now and drag by himself to nobody and just like giving everything he had. I was like, man, this is like one of the most beautiful and bizarre things I've ever seen in my life. Like this needs to be in a movie. I actually wrote How Soon Is Now into the script. You know, Jeremy and I very quickly, we're not going to get that. Let's find something better anyway. And credit to him for for deducing it down and getting the options together. And then we listened to Flesh for Fantasy together. And it was like, well, this is definitely the one to go with. And Mark, rest in peace. I mean, he he gave us everything in that role. And and Kuko, uh, our buddy Bo, mm-hmm. did as well. It's like amazing to watch those scenes be acted when you're there in, in person because and see people go there. And you're like, holy shit, like we built this construct. I'm asking them to do these things that aren't easy to do. I mean, it's, it's, that's really delicate and tough stuff to do, especially if you are a macho guy and you know, it's a risk and for them to trust us both and, uh, and trust what I wrote and all that, it's flattering. And, uh, you know, it, it breaks my heart to watch it on screen. You know, Jeremy and I had a moment last week when we premiered it, you know, just seeing Mark and, and getting to remember him. It's sad, but so thrilled. You love that sequence. Cause it's one of my favorite I've ever done. Yeah. It's fantastic. It was just it was great. And I, I think kind of to the point you're making about like being at that bar and seeing somebody give it like 100%, like that is the nature of that community. You know, nothing is half-assed and nothing is done lightly. It's all done like very intentionally. And to go to a place like that is also very intentional. And it was so nice to see Bo, who plays Kuko, kind of have this almost vulnerable moment, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, ooh, yeah, she's she's got you weak in the knees a little bit. And I, you know, <laughs> we didn't know where he was going to go with that. And then when he when he kind of erupted, when he broke character, still with that stone face and with the shades on, we were just beside ourselves. The guy is just what an actor, Bo Knapp. Mm. I mean, I so many things and was lucky enough to cast him in Ida Red. And he really took it there. And this whole role, that scene included. It was funny, even his own agent asked me, well, he's playing Cuco. Is Bo actually Latino? I go, well, he's your client, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, do you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he, you know, he's got half Puerto Rican in his family and uh, Mark Ward, Misty. Yeah, I mean, he really took it there. And as John said before, I think in our Canyonland episode together, one of the things, Mark, we were so grateful for, not only his friendship first and foremost, but he was just willing to go anywhere with us. And we think this was the epitome of it for, you know, Navy veteran straight man to to go full tilt singing Billy Idol's Fletch for Fantasy and Drag. And man, we're so grateful. And it's such a living tribute to him. Well, it was a beautiful scene. So good work. Uh, Another actor that showed up who I haven't seen in a long time was Peter Green. How audiences most... Yes, we got pumped for that. Peter! Who most audiences might know as Zed from Pulp Fiction. But for me, his my favorite performance of his is in uh, Clean Shaven, uh, Lodge Kerrigan. Lodge Kerrigan? Um, Yeah. Yeah. uh, The Mask? That's an amazing... The Mask? Oh, the mask. He's amazing in the mask, too. And Usual suspects he's amazing in. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah. Red Feather, you know, with the, when he's got the uh, the oh cigarette. Oh my god, Red Foot, yeah, get like, the fuck out of here. He is so good. Peter, he, uh, we worked with him in Body Brokers. You know, one of the first things he said to us upon arriving in Tulsa to shoot Little Dixie was, uh, "Hey, I'm surprised you had me back." <laughs> <laughs> he's amazing in his scenes. About his where he lived, where did you find that location that he had a Loved perfect it, '50s den? Like what so was that? Like where did whose house was that? That house is owned by my father's childhood friends, family. So they, I, I grew up going over there for holiday parties. My dad grew up going over there for holiday parties when he was a kid. It's looked the same since he went. It's huge. It's enormous, and it's it's like a time capsule, mid-century, like a museum almost. Like there, we've used that house, I think, in in two different films now. And you would never know it was the same house. I mean, there was no dressing done there. A lot of these locations, especially in this film, I scouted the movie before I wrote the movie. So I kind of knew where I was going to shoot when I sat down to write. It was kind of an interesting exercise. I do that a lot when we shoot in Tulsa because uh, there's kind of this like Rolodex of locations that I that just look so amazing that I want to incorporate them in a movie somehow. And that house is, uh, you know, is one of a kind, certainly. So Also... This is the second film I've watched to you guys. You guys like Christmas, huh? <laughs> that was a happy accident. When this ended up being shot, we didn't really necessarily predict it to be pre-Christmas, but it was one of those things like there were so many exteriors going into the shoot that we, we weren't going to be able to control neighborhoods and take down Christmas lights. So we were like, fuck it. We'll just own that it's Christmas. It's free you know, mm-hmm. production value. And then we go into that house to scout it and they've decorated for Christmas. And it's like, this is so amazing. How could we deny this? Yeah. And then on Candyland, I wrote it over Christmas. We shot it in May, but it was just one of those things that it just felt better as a, as a Christmas movie. So I have like a list of Christmas movies that are, that are not necessarily Christmas movies. And Candyland is on that list now. It's yeah. like here, like, you know, like you know, people say Die Hard. Like, it's, like right. oh, it's a Christmas movie. It's like Candyland's just like, oh, this is a Christmas movie I could recommend to people. Yeah, Christmas just being a backdrop, right? I mean, when it's, I think it's very refreshing to me, especially growing up not celebrating Christmas. Why does it have to be about Christmas during Christmas time? It's just a backdrop, you know? So you mm-hmm. see the shtick and the motif, but we're not in any way referencing the holiday. The one way we did Candyland with, with Santa, right? With our dear friend, Bruce Davis. And it's more kind of mockery, the holiday. So mm-hmm. as opposed to rejoicing and giving thanks and fuck all that. Yeah, it's it's like a nice. Well, what's Christmas really about? You know, it's a fucking nightmare. So let it be. I was just gonna say, I I think there was something about this film that I really enjoyed a lot. Were like the moments of levity. Like I felt like those were interspersed very appropriately. It was nice to kind of have like a break every few scenes where it was just like, okay, okay, I'm gonna breathe. I'm gonna breathe now, and uh, and we're gonna let this and we're gonna let this go. You know, like I mean, for me, the funniest part of Candyland was, of course, like that very last shot. I was just like dying but like this you know like the scene with like paul green was like no you can't have my gun like give me your gun no i'm not i'm not don't hit me don't touch me i was just like yes <laughs> like, and like i said before too like the the arms dealer scene the the arms dealer billy blair who we've discussed uh when you see him in one day as a lion he plays this this criminal defense attorney called kenny walsh and oh we're God. still toying with the idea of doing some kind of spin-off you know, very, kind of like a uh, better call Saul. <laughs> yes. You've been injured, you know, call Kenny Walsh. Like, I mean, he, he That's right. rocks it. So uh, we love him. He's That's just so one of the quirkiest, sweetest, most genuine guys. We double down on that uh, and that that look he's curating. <laughs> oh, my. Love I was look. like more hairspray. 
please. More. It's actually More. it's actually spray on hair. Got it. Yeah. So oh, it's even better. That, that, okay. Are you saying he's that's not all his natural hair? You're saying <laughs> no, no, that's that's actually spray like on cotton black candy. Hair. Yeah. Oh my god. You know, well, that like makes that. me love it even that's more. Back to Goodfellas, it's like Maury's wigs, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he like jumps in the pool. He's like, Maury's wigs. Listen, come in for your customized fitting. More <laughs> men need to talk about their hair insecurities. And I think this is something that you can start to fold into your next script, John, is like really the struggle. You would have no the idea. Struggles. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> what we've dealt with, you know, just in terms of hair, you know, and our actors. <laughs> like, I'm not going to go into oh, too I'm much sh- detail. I'm sure. I'm pretty much, I think Jeremy and I signed a few NDAs regarding people's hair, but uh, yeah, I'm not going to go. It's, uh, yeah. it's really something. Yeah. My favorite, one of my, f- another favorite moment of mine is uh, Doc and Rich's last moment together. One of my favorite scenes in anything is an episode of Columbo called By Dawn's Early Light. It's with uh, Patrick McGowan. It's the best episode of Columbo, if anybody wants to watch that. And it's a scene where both men are having a conversation, but it's not the conversation they're really having. And with Doc and Rich, it's like, we know what's about to happen here. I love when people don't say what's actually happening, where they just find something else to talk about. And that scene's great, the way that plays. I love the way that it's, they both know what this is. And as Eric, Eric really sells it in that scene, too. It's just like... The way he just says, ah, damn, like he knows like the jig is up. He's like, yeah, I kind of fucked up, huh? Damn. Like they both know what this is about, but they don't talk about it. I love that moment. That That's one of those scenes on paper where you're like, oh, this is going to be great. And then you get there to shoot it and you're like, wow, this is a really, really tough scene to shoot. Like there's so much going on in the subtext mm-hmm. right. that you hope lands, you know, visually because it's. Like you said, you're just trying to read their faces and, you know, process what they're saying, but really look underneath the words. Frank and Eric both had this great chemistry just right off the bat. And I think it really played well on cameras. And they nailed that scene, luckily, because without nailing that scene, I mean, the whole movie falls on its face because it's kind of all it's all working to that moment. And then the movie takes a whole turn. But that moment has to land. Otherwise, you know, the bit in the car where he's talking to the bag and then the end when he drops the bag at the lake, like. That's the setup for everything is that scene between the two of them. So I'm glad it I'm glad it worked. I love watching those moments where people just like those moments of realization. It's like, holy shit, how did we get here? It's like, I'm sorry. There's a, it's a, another great scene that's like that is in the first episode of Larry Sanders, the season finale of the first Larry Sanders show, uh, first season, Larry Sanders, where Hank and Larry just have this moment where they step outside themselves, like the, the these characters they've kind of become over time. And it's like, oh, my God, like, how have you been? Like, it's like, that's that moment. It's like, how have you been? It's like, oh, my God, we, we just let business get in the way. And like, oh, shit, man, I haven't talked to you forever, even though these people dealt with each other a lot. Where did you get the idea for the story from for the this like with the Mexican cartels and dealing with politics, which I, I can't imagine has ever happened. The, go- the government never dealt with drug dealers. We've <laughs> never had that happen. I mean, the, the idea, you know, uh, the theme of resentment, you know, that I'm just carrying over from the last podcast we did, you know, where Jeremy and I mm. operate a lot from, you know, <laughs> just not seeing movies like this, you know, being made. Maybe it was naive or I'm just not as smart as I think I am, but I didn't really 
how that would be perceived. I mean, there's a lot of people that re- like, you know, now that we've released this and, and we're getting to kind of interact with people, there's a lot of people that really, really miss these kind of movies and have been like, you know, thank you guys so much for, for doing this. Like, it's almost like a risk what you guys are doing by bringing these kind of films back. And then there's a lot of people that didn't realize they missed these movies. And then there's a lot of people that just hate these kind of movies. And I got the idea from it just again, like going back to the things that made me want to make films and the movies that inspired me. And a lot of them were 70s, 80s, and 90s action movies, you know, that you just like, you just don't see anymore. Rolling Thunder, like Straight Time, like Peckinpah films, the Clint Eastwood movies, all those kind of things. You know, they're made, but they're not made in a way that I feel like is interesting to me and that has a certain level of authentic grit like this one does. A lot of so, hand-holding. There's a lot of yeah, hand-holding Exactly. Today. The rough edges are smoothed over about character. Like Frank right. Grillo is not a hero. That's jarring, I think, for modern people to like modern audiences. Like this guy's do it. He's just ruthlessly pragmatic. Like I said earlier, he just like this was, is what needs to be done. And his morality doesn't play into it. He's not. He's just an amoral guy. He's not like a, a necessarily a bad person. It's just like, well, this needs. Well, this person needs a headshot and that person needs a headshot. And that's what needs to be done here. And and like I think pe- that throws people because they like they just want their things cleaner. They want their characters. They want like uh, they want a very clean redemption arc. They want they don't want them to have those rough edges. That's no, true. I mean, even like you know, uh, one of my favorite films is Taxi Driver. I mean, that movie couldn't be made today. No, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and we love those characters. You know, I mean, Harvey Keitel, I love in that movie. But if you think hard enough about what he's doing, you're like, this is insane we put this kind of character on screen and it's just no way it would happen today so i mean yeah the rough edges i think are what we're longing for and you know want to make sure we we preserve in our films yeah i think you know it's something that michael mann does so famously throughout his career i mean just off the top of my head what he did with de niro's character in heat what he did with tom cruise's character in collateral which by the way was the inspiration for doc's gray suit you know, we, we love this kind of thing, right? Where the, uh, I wouldn't call him the villain, maybe the anti-hero. He's essentially someone who's objectively committing crimes and murders, but you love it. You're rooting for him. That's amazing. That that kind of conflict. It's a bit dangerous. It's, it's quite voyeuristic. But to your point, exactly. Things are not that nuanced, I think, anymore. It's largely cookie cutter and you know who the good guys and the bad guys are. I think that's largely a product of the Marvel Universe. You know, the evil. Careful, those people get crazy. That's why oh, I was very very careful as a guys calm down <laughs> oh yeah I say, I say that respectfully yeah i mean i'm i'm not much of a fan myself i mean i like the very gritty dark departures obviously the the joker-esque material you know but yeah growing up i mean in the 80s right i mean there was <clears throat> when you would watch even a van damme film or a seagal film or chuck norris or charles bronson i mean these guys are all so bizarre and so unapologetically uh masculine and violent and you've got all these colorful characters around them, some of whom are non sequiturs. And it's just, it's such a poetic, you know, Fellini-esque dance. And it's it's, it's so fun. And and this was such a respite for us, Little Dixie. So, getting back to like 80s action movies, like how do we introduce Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in Commando? Have him carry an entire tree. <laughs> I love, uh, what's his name? The guy who plays Sully in that movie. He's also in The Warriors and uh, Luther from uh, from 48 Hours. Another great example. 48 Hours, like Jack's character in 48 Hours. You would never have mm-hmm. a character like that who's just a bitter racist. But well, 48 love- hours would just never exist. No, you know, you can never I mean, do that like, film. Like, yeah, so, and it's a great movie. You it know? is. It's, so, it's, yeah. 
it's so amazing. Like you don't get a character like that. They they smooth a guy like that out. He would like he would never say the things he says to Eddie Murphy. Right, but that's right. who he is. And but that but that's what makes his eventual understanding of Eddie Murphy more it exactly it more like earned. It because means it's just something. Like, yeah, it means something because that's the place he came from. But audiences, I don't want to see him say that. It's because they just can't. They don't want to. Re- they can't reconcile that in their heads now. Yeah, like yeah. for instance, you you look at the Green Book. That's mm. so watered down, right? I mean, if you were, as you can speak to firsthand, Frank, if you were chronicling a New York Italian guy growing up in that era, you know, they right. watered it so down. What Vigo did, I also don't think he got the accent or any Italian shtick right at all. It was so watered down. So the catharsis when he and Doctor Shirley became best friends, basically, it just it didn't pay off for me. Because it started from an artificial place. How are you guys like? I don't know. I read somewhere where I where the budget is. I don't want to talk budget, but it's amazing what you guys are able to pull off. It's like if you would have told me, "Hey, what's this movie cost?" Uh, ballpark fifteen million, easy, fifteen twenty maybe. From what I understand, it wasn't even close to that. No, well, that's uh, that's perhaps the most flattering thing you can say. I mean, we uh, <laughs> we certainly aim to portray a production value that is. Uh, a multiple of what we actually have financially, it's a low seven-figure sum. You know, it's kind of be careful what you wish for, right? I mean, as Frank is quick to tout, we make these quote-unquote great movies for no money. So what would we do with ourselves? We did have $15 million. I, I'm sure we figure it out. <laughs> you you got to like hold back a little something because now it's like, ah, you don't need 15. Look what you did with uh, whatever you made it for. <laughs> Gift of the curse, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like big action set pieces. There's a lot of... Like headshots, it's like, damn, that's like tough to stage, you know, with money, like with a lot of cash. And it's just like you're staging all this stuff with, you know, I don't I don't know how you do it. What like I don't know what deal we, you made. We had a great stunt team, um, major props to Frank's longtime friend and stunt double, Greg Fitzpatrick, who's rocking it. If you look closely, you can see his face a couple of times, which which also is such a lovely nostalgic treat. Uh, even some of those exploitation mm-hmm. films, like I'm going to get you sucker would parody yes. that kind of thing. <laughs> to a guy you with know, a mustache. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, mom, yeah. yeah, the mom turns into for, for an actress with a mustache. <laughs> 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 There's a, a, a tad bit of that, but our stunt guys really took it there. Uh, our, our buddy Brandon Smith, who who got thrown through the glass window, and I mean, rigging that was was a first for John and and for me. And we just came together famously. It was just such a family affair, as it always has to be for these to work. Because I thought it's like, wow, you guys pulled off a lot with Candyland, and then you see this, it's like, holy shit! Like this is a, a big step up. Uh, Frank Grillo, getting back to him, like what's his what's his core routine? Because I cannot get in shape like that if I try. And that son of a bitch, every time you see him, he's like the peak of human fitness. <laughs> It's ridiculous. Uh, uh, well, we we just returned from uh, premiering this thing, Little Dixie Rotterdam, and this this comes up regularly. Frank is yeah, he's a machine. I mean, into his late fifties, and defying Wait, he all. Is? Oh yeah, defying all <laughs> physics and gravity and aging. I'm in trouble. Uh, I mean, he's you know he he is it's it's uh, it's a lifestyle that's beyond comprehension by way of obviously fitness and fighting and nutrition and all the bells and whistles, some of which you probably would not want us to disclose. <laughs> uh, oh my but God. It, it, he's a machine, but also the loveliest of guys and, and such a dear friend of ours. Oh my <laughs> God. You, Frank, he what? is. Oh my God. Wait, <laughs> what? I really did. If you would have said, 
dude, I, I, if you put him next to me, oh we'd say God. he's the same, we're the same age. That means I'm falling apart. It's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> Quick little anecdote there. We're, we're doing one day's <laughs> wine last summer with him, uh, along with J.K. Simmons and Scott Kahn and a great little cast. Anyways, one of our go-to crew members who's been with us a while, uh, he had his shirt off for the scene. He Because uh, we often put crew in, in the scene and when it calls for it, we like to keep people on their toes and save on background and you know, it's That's a family it. environment. Anyway, so he gets in, he has his shirt off. It's, you know, it's a thousand degrees, summer in Oklahoma. We're on this ranch. He's playing one of the ranch hands, gets into a tussle, has his shirt off and a hat and a pipe. And Frank said to him off camera, he goes, um, looking at him, looking at his gut and with perfect timing goes, uh, you know, you're not going to be 29 forever, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a line. Yeah. And now a word from our sponsors. I swear, this city gets crazier and crazier every day. Hey, listen. Oh, jeez, we got a live one. Hey, buddy, the English nobleman in my teeth told me something. Hey, if you go to wnuf.bigcartel.com, you get the out there Halloween mega tape and other products. I bet you didn't know that. Did you know that the dust balls in my living room, they're there on purpose? Did you know that? Um, do you, do you want like a dollar or something? Ah! Ah! Did you just throw a cat at me? <laughs> oh my god, are you okay? I saw everything. Yeah. I think so. I'll tell you one thing, though. I'm not going to rest until I find out more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from WNUF.BigCartel.com. I can tell you that much. Yes, I too would like to learn more about how to purchase the out there Halloween mega tape and other products from WNUF.BigCartel.com. and testimonies heard today are pertinent to the case of Annie Marie Singleton. Seclusion. My name is Vince LaRusso. I'm a detective with the Grafton, Vermont Police Department. Seclusion. Betsy, would you introduce yourself for our records? My name is Elizabeth Stewart. Seclusion. Is there anything in your conversation to suggest that your sister was in trouble? No, she sounded... This is harder than I thought it would be. Seclusion. Seclusion. Nobody you can think of from your past who'd wanted to disrupt her life in some way. I don't know. The internet is crazy, so I... Betsy. Seclusion. Seclusion. Is there any... Seclusion. Seclusion. Conceivable reason to believe... Seclusion. Seclusion. That Annie committed those murders. Seclusion. 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 So I have a question. Yes. Jeremy, I saw that you were the casting director. And um, music supervisor. What, yeah. Did you guys sort of like discuss casting like beforehand and then you sort of like reach out to people or are you traditionally holding auditions or like what was that like for something like this where you guys are working with a budget and you have like such specific ideas in mind. Also, the casting of Doc's wife was fantastic. She was amazing. And the daughter is like a Jordan Sparks mini me when I, I was like, when is she singing? Um, uh, uh, 
But no, so I, I appreciated also the fact that it was a diverse group of people. But tell me a little bit about that casting process. Yeah, sure. Thank you for the question. Um, casting is my favorite thing without boring with the details. You know, in my producer capacity, I'd worked with world-renowned, multi-academy award-winning casting directors. And with the utmost respect to them, I said to myself, you know, uh, I think I can do better. And, yeah. and it, I'm all heart. You know, I, I really, so I'm, I feel like there's this, um, in keeping up with the Joneses, casting directors, especially on larger productions, they feel the need to act the part. And it's a bit of a cattle call, right? So you've got these casting portals, you you send the breakdowns out, mm -hmm. every agency in town, you know, from, yeah. from top notch to unknown are throwing ideas at you. It's very much a shotgun blast approach. And I, we don't have the time, patience or budget to do that. So we're very precise and wherever possible by way of financing, by way of scheduling, uh, and obviously who's creatively appropriate for the role. We do like to dip back into the same pond, you know, uh, to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to work with our, our so-called troop of actors. But beyond that, I mean, it's essentially, I, I have, I'm very much a bird and hand guy, right? So when it comes to relationships and all things. Mm -hmm. So, so those agents and managers and actors themselves who I have a solid rapport with, I'll reach out to them and uh, see what they think about it. Obviously, all this is done with John's input and blessing, and we're very much a team with all these things. I love it. You know, John and I joke around. Uh, we go, oh, that's a that's a Rosen and Associates special, you know, which is kind of this, <laughs> this generic casting agency name we came up for what I do. But um, yeah. Yeah. We, John and I, you know, do everything other than, you know, hold the boom. We just love it. I mean, music is, that's my background as a music lawyer and manager. And so basically, you know, we have, as with the budget, right, there's there's what we'd love to make it for, and there's what we can make it for. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. there's a bit of that when it comes to casting and music as well. So we have our proverbial wish list, and then we have right. what we can get. So we strike that mm -hmm. balance. And ideally, it's more towards the former as opposed to just settling. This came together, this ensemble and uh, Frank and Amanda, even now as we're rolling this thing out, just being released yesterday, it's really heartwarming because everyone from from Mercedes Mason, who played Julie Reed, to Sufi Bradshaw, who played Carla, to Sophia Bryant, who played Nell, aka Little Dixie, to Bo Knapp, who plays Cuco, to Eric Dane, who plays Governor's Jeff, to Annabeth Gish, who plays Billy Riggs, to, of course, the man himself, Frank Grillo, who plays Doc, on and on. I mean, we have such a relationship with every one of these people, whether it predated Little Dixie with previous projects together, or we forged our bond there. But we're all in this together. Everyone is so happy to be involved. It's very genuine. They love the vibe that we create there on and off set. And it's funny, John and I really don't know how we're, we're perceived. And finally, when we hear the same positive feedback time and time again, we go, okay, well, I guess it must be true. And that's flattering. We're and doing we'll, something right. Yeah, we'll take the compliment, which is, you know, difficult yeah. for a lot of people to take compliments. You don't know what to do with yourself. Plus the uh, material, right. when you guys have material like yours, actors don't get to do a lot of that stuff. But I was an actor and it's like, I got a role like Doc. Somebody offered me a role like Doc. It's like, of course you'd want to do that. Who wouldn't want to play the coolest, toughest son bitch in the room? As biased as I am, I completely agree with you. I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I think everyone would want to play Doc um, subject to fill in the blank, right? So that is, do I have anything that's more important slash more lucrative slash more politically expedient? by way of a certain showrunner with a series, by way of a certain casting director or a studio. So 
There are a lot of agents and managers who simply will not, they have their clients on a very short leash, frankly. And unless a client goes rogue and says, you know what, I'm doing this because I love John, I love Jeremy, and you know we love their movies. But if we don't meet a certain threshold, it's often a non-starter by way of a financial offer. Certain agents and managers are notorious for not affording us access, and others are family. Again, we go with with what and who we have, subject to whatever limitations that we impose on ourselves or are imposed on us. All are not created equal, right? It's uh, who we have access to and who's down with the cause. And mm-hmm. from there, we cobble together the best possible ensemble, and it it it, it works out famously. And it's we're so proud of it because I mean, ultimately, it's got to be at least two thirds of the pie. I mean, because we know what these people do. As I often say, when people pitch me, agents, managers, etc., I say, well, if he or she hasn't been in something that I really dig, I'm likely not going to offer them the role. Like I, it's it's almost a lost cause pitching me on people when I don't know who they are because I'm I'm a fan first, right? I I've watched so many movies for so long. So I mean, for instance, and I'm not just saying this because he passed, but John can attest this. I spent years of my life trying to cast Michael Kenneth Williams. I mean, I'm mm. such a fan of his. Everything he does, it's just, I'm just mesmerized. And so finally, when I had the opportunity to meet him and cast him, you know, I just fanned out, you know, and right. then either with him. And then in the years since he's passed, John, I look at it, we go, oh my God, this is a living tribute to him. And how lucky are we? So it's a fan first, it's ultimate passion. And to be, to be really responsible for what we're doing, um, as opposed yeah. to outsourcing music supervision, casting, legal you know, it's stuff that that we do. And yes, it may not bode well for time management or personal relationships, but I, I want to make sure it's done perfectly. So, yeah. Right. I mean, that kind of ownership makes it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Relatable. Mm-hmm. You've worked with Bo Knapp before. I, his performance is amazing because he's such a rigid person. The way he moves back, getting back to the drag show is like where he kind of like loosens up a little bit because his whole walk is like very deliberate in the way he moves. That's a character in another movie that would just be a heavy. Like he could have had his own spinoff movie. Uh, uh, just hint, hint, you know, just hey, you got him. So <laughs> I'd love to see like the adventures of Kuko. Yeah, I mean, uh, Bo is a. Uh... You know, we've worked with him now twice, and and hopefully uh, we're going to be doing another one soon with him. But the thing that makes Bo so remarkable, and it's the same thing that makes Frank special to me, is just how physical they are as actors. You know, they're not turned on by words and dialogue as much as they are about just how they're actually physically going to exist as this character. And Bo's walk, his gait... No, I joke with him about his jaw muscles because he's he does this thing where he's clinching with his jaw throughout the film. You know, he never shows his eyes until he's with Dixie. I mean, there's all these little nuanced things that we discussed about the character. And again, wanted to make him speak as little as possible and just exist physically because uh, there's something so much more powerful about that than words. So, yeah, I mean, Bo is, is one of the greatest actors of, of his age and, uh, and generation, I think. And I don't think he gets the respect he deserves, but I'm, I'm glad he's getting some now for this. What amazing performance. And top to bottom, everybody's so good in this film. Uh, Annabeth Gish, who... <laughs> Who I only, who I remember most from, I'm embarrassed to say, as Sparky from the Shaq movie Steel. Uh, she's <laughs> wonderful in the film. Uh, Annabeth and I worked together in Mary Heron's Charlie Says that I spent so many years of my life developing. And we became really good buddies, really bonded at the Tribeca premiere here in New York. And Annabeth knows this. Speaking of Christmas, our Little Dixie shoe was backing up to Christmas in 2021. 
which doesn't bode well for for casting. People tend to like uh, to be with their families. What a concept! Oh, the whole uh, industry shuts down around the holidays. It's oh just yeah, like, you know yeah, exactly. Everybody shuts down between Thanksgiving and and uh, yeah. and New Year's. You know, there's there's nothing going on. There were so many amazing options, and and Annabeth really came through for us. I mean, she was, uh, you know, again we were buddies, and uh, and she just said yes right away, and. And spending time away from her her family, and I don't take that for granted. Man, she rocked it. She so she played the prison warden for um, Leslie, Pat, and Susan, the, the Manson ladies, and then she played Billy Riggs. And she's just she's got this down. I mean, uh, it's yeah. uh, she just turned it on, and uh, and to see her workshop things with John without really any prep whatsoever, her just showing up there in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and and knowing the written word, but then just adapting so quickly and seamlessly with our existing ensemble. It was quite a feat and we enjoyed every bit of it. We're so grateful to her. Now, your next thing is One Day as a Lion. When's that coming out? Next week? I mean, you guys are at that kind of cliff, so. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I was just talking to the head of publicity at Lionsgate, the distributor. Um, we've not yet announced the release date. Any day now, we will. Um, it, it's likely April. Although it may be May. So, uh, yeah, so it'll be spring. Uh, and it's a bizarre happenstance that it's kind of a one, two, three punch here. You work with, so Charlie says you work with Matt Smith. If I turn this off, you'd see a lot of Doctor Who shit everywhere. So, uh, yeah, big Doctor Who fan. Me and my wife met because of Doctor Who. We both were, this is how, this is, this is how dorky we are. We met online for the season seven premiere. So, like, we're, oh, yeah, that's how big we're. So, we're big Doctor Who fans. It's amazing. But you also work with Paul Schrader, which we've talked about. So, was that a thing for you where you're just like, I'm a fan of Paul Schrader. You got to jump at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, to, to make sure to give credit where credit is due. I mean, I didn't enlist Paul. I was, um, you know, that Doggy Dog was my first movie. So, it was a hell of a first movie to be with the king. This producer showed up in my then office in Los Angeles and threw a book on my desk. And, uh, I, you know, basically said, What are you doing? <laughs> And he goes, uh, I want you to go get me the rights to this book. And the book was Doggy Dog. And uh, and there a producer was born because I, I was already kind of disgruntled <laughs> with my music clients, living vicariously through them and not having my own creative outlet. I had this whole awakening. You know, I, I came alive and I go, wait a minute. I don't I have no idea what a producer does. And, and, and most people don't, not even producers themselves. It's inherently ambiguous. And it's a wide range. Some are very hands-on and some are hands-off. So you make two uh, phone calls. That's technically producing. Like, you know, totally. yeah. Yeah. And it's um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm very much an all or nothing guy. I, I don't know how not to do it all, right? It's a, a gift and a curse. I am all or nothing. So even if an opportunity presents itself where I'm kind of hands-off, it's it's uncomfortable for me. You know, I I, I have to be justifying my my role and my whatever I'm getting out of it. So Bunker, the author of Dog Eat Dog, uh, who's who was a real life heist man. Eddie Bunker, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, of course. Bunker. Um so he had he had passed by then. And so I was dealing with his son, the heir, who was actually attending college in Colorado at the time, and the literary manager for the for the Bunker's estate. As was the case with uh, the two books that I optioned for Charlie Says, the Manson picture I did with Mar Mary Heron, rights are often not available when you inquire about them. So you have to be patient and you have to really be a salesperson. So um, so they weren't available. I would check in periodically every however many months. I would let them know what else I was doing. I would talk a big game about what I'm going to do with it and who we're going to cast with it. And it's, you know basically talking shit about the current option holder. Like, you know, what are they doing? I mean, how many <laughs> years of the option? Give it to me. I'm going to make it happen. The kind of thing, you know, it's a lot of fake it till you make it. And this, that was no exception. So 
it, I'm not nearly, I wasn't nearly as hands-on with all the physical production back then as I am now. But yeah, I mean, uh, optioned the book, uh, hired Bonnie Timmerman, a legendary casting director who got us to uh, Willem Dafoe and Nicolas Cage. Uh, and obviously, once Schrader was on, it was game over. He, he really liked the adaptation from this writer, Matthew Wilder. And they've gone on to do other work together. It was amazing. And 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 with with Doggy Dog, I remember seeing it with Paul at the LA premiere at the Egyptian Theater as part of Beyond Fest uh, back in 2016 after it had premiered. I remember seeing people walk out. And that's such a badge of honor for me and for John, right? I mean, we want these things to make people uncomfortable. Good. You didn't like Kuko um, beating Misty? Uh, okay, yeah. You got to get the squares out of there. You got to yeah, push the squares out. It. Enjoy it. Bask in the, in the awkwardness. So, yeah. So it, it's ironic that I work with Paul Schrader and Mary Heron, two legends, uh, but now I'm doing what I really want to do, which is making these incredible pictures with my best buddy, John, and we're having a blast doing it. So you, you mentioned uh, so Rolling cool. Thunder before, which is an amazing film that Quentin Tarantino popularized when he put it out on video because I hadn't seen it. Like I saw it as a teenager and I was blown away. William Devane's amazing in that. But Tommy Lee Jones, yeah, it's amazing. His career kind of went downhill for a while until Under Siege happened. Because right. he that and like Cole Miner's daughter, he's unfucking real in that movie. Like he is so scary. Like he's like, wow, this guy's not even a human being anymore. And, yeah, uh, I mean, that, I didn't see that until I was a teenager either. But I'd never really seen anything quite like it. Super violent. Yeah, just unapologetic. Yeah, Tommy Lee Jones. I didn't even realize that was him. I don't think until maybe the third time I saw it. You know. Yeah. Because I yeah. So yeah, it's a great yeah. movie. He disappears in that movie. Another movie that nobody talks about from Schrader, but I always pimp out to people is Blue Collar, which nobody talks about. Blue Collar is amazing. Too. Yeah, it's his first movie. Yeah, it's yeah. a great film. What was like the first crime movie you watched that you went, oh, I like this? Uh, it wasn't really anything too um, fringe. It was fringe to me being from Oklahoma and and not really having access to independent cinema or anything other than like popcorn movies you'd see in a theater or what you could get on VHS at Blockbuster. But my uncle attended the Sundance premiere of, of Reservoir Dogs. And so, wow. And, and he would tell me about it. And I was I was maybe like six or seven and he got it on VHS when I was, I guess I was, it was probably the following year, I was seven or eight, and we watched it at my grandmother's house. And I remember being like, this is, I've never seen a movie like this. I've never seen anything. I've never even like, it felt so real to me because the only thing I'd been exposed to was, you know, Disney films and, you know, just whatever was playing at the movie theater. But I remember, you know, Tim Roth, like, writhing in pain and squealing in the backseat, all bloody. You're going to be okay. Yeah, you're going to be okay. And I was like... This is the most intense thing I've ever seen in my life. I remember feeling very, very sick watching it <laughs> because I, I had never really experienced mm -hmm. that before. But, you know, it, it stuck with me. The idea that you could do something like that with a camera and, and tell a story like that, you know, it kind of opened my, my completely opened my brain, you know, and I saw El Topo a few years later and my brain just totally. Wow. Fucking yeah. I was just, off, you know, yeah. My last interview I did with uh, Chris LaMartina, we were talking about like how that was a movie you had to. Man, like there was tape trading sites because it wasn't in print for a long time. Right. And El Topo, when I first saw that, was like on one of those shitty bootleg tapes. And right. yeah, that's right. a brain melter when you like you see that too young. That and the whole I was ten. I was like ten. Oh, I was like, Jesus, I, I that's no way too idea. Young. Yeah, but I, but it was one of those things again that like I didn't like when I saw it at first. And I certainly didn't appreciate it. 
but I never forgot the imagery. You know, yeah. I was like, I'll never, you know, the riding on the horse with the baby. And like, I was just like, this is, there's something really, really strong and authentic and, and real going on here, but I have no idea how to comprehend it. Yeah, but, that's um, a tough movie to interpret as an adult. And like, but, yeah, but you know what? Those two films in particular really, really stuck with me. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why they were, they were hard to comprehend at the time, but those two, I remember thinking, wow, like, okay, so there's much more that can be done here besides what's being presented to me at the movie theater, you know, my local AMC or whatever. So Tarantino, like with Reservoir Dogs, which was what amazing was about what Tarantino did back then was, wasn't just like the movies he made was that he was the first filmmaker you saw talk about like, Oh, and this is from this. And this is from this. And this is right. from this. And he made you want to see those movies that he's talking about. Like just having Eddie Bunker in it as Mr. Blue. You're like, right. who's Eddie Bunker. I want to see. And that's like, that leads you to straight time. And that right, leads right. you to stuff like that. Yeah, I didn't realize I was back. Like I just rewatched uh, Straight Time after our interview. It's like it's been a long time since I watched it. I didn't realize I was rocking the Dembo mustache. The <laughs> <time>. <laughs> so next is One Day's a Lion, and you're is the movie you're shooting now Land of Grace? No, the movie we're shooting. Well, we're not shooting a movie now. We're about to be shooting a movie in March and April, uh, titled BRBS. It's a great cast. You'll see some familiar faces. Wink, wink. You know, then we're cooking up the Candyland sequel. And uh, really? Yeah. And John just finished. Um, I mean, fuck it. I'll just say it. The best script he's ever written called King Ivory, which is uh, one of the street names for fentanyl. I feel like that's going to be our thing. The calling card of calling cards. It is. Uh, yeah. What can I say? It, it has everything wrapped up in it that we love, you know, from from uh, Sicario to, to Narcos to Ozark. And it's based on a great deal of research with the Oklahoma State prison gangs, which uh, traffic all the fentanyl. It's pretty gnarly and it's going to be awesome. Well, folks, this is great. Uh, again, I'm in the bag for anything you guys make. You're two for two with me. I got to go actually go back and watch. I haven't watched Ida Red yet, but that's my next mission. Ooh, oh, do that. Do that, man. Do retreat, man. Yeah. Well, you got that. What's that? People love that. Oh, man. Wait until you meet the Walker family. Okay. Uh, That's my next Pro? one. Oh, man. Talk about here's a little preview. Um, a gay porn theater with Dallas Walker, Frank's character, and Wyatt Walker, Josh Hartnett's character. Uh, having a having a, a meeting there, uh, you know, a la The Departed or Cruising. And uh, it, it's a blast. And we shot that. It was the, the first film back for every cast and crew member, early pandemic. This was summer mm. 2020. No one was leaving their homes, and we actually yeah. shot a movie, and it was lightning in a bottle. All right, it's it's on my queue, so cool. it's going up next, uh, <laughs> guys. I don't think I have to say that you guys are welcome here anytime. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourselves. You guys are great. I love talking to you guys about your work. I think you guys are doing amazing stuff. I actually, surprisingly, even though like I'm more uh, more of a horror fan than like a crime fan, but it's like. I, I got to say, I like this more than Candyland. I just really, it, it, it took me back to a time of like, where you have a Lee Marvin or a Charles Bronson, where you don't see those, those stoic tough guys anymore. And I, and it, and it, just, it felt fresh. It didn't feel like it was a copy paste of those kind of movies, which a lot of people try to do. And it's just like, it feels like a unique vision and I'm rambling now, but I love the movie. I love what you guys do. And thank you, Frank. Please, thank you. Come, uh, please come back anytime. I'd love to have you back to talk about anything. Thank you, you both. Say. Thank you, Amanda. My pleasure. Yeah, Frank and Amanda, we're uh, we're we're humbled and grateful. We don't take it for granted your support, and thank you for having us again. Thank you, guys. Pleasure. <laughs>